film which you are about to see is an account of the tragedy which befell a group of five youths, in particular, Sally Hardesty and her invalid brother, Franklin. It is all the more tragic in that they were young. But had they lived very, very long lives, they could not have expected, nor would they have wished to see as much of the mad and macabre as they were to see that day. For them, an idyllic summer afternoon drive became a nightmare. The events of that day were to lead to the discovery of one of the most bizarre crimes in the annals of American history, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And welcome to the Heart God Media Podcast, and today we will celebrate 45 years of one of the most iconic and one of the most uh, grisly and one of the most memorable and one of the most historic uh, horror films of all time, and today we are talking about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, 45 years, and to do this with me, I couldn't think of anybody better to discuss this with me than my very good friend and very good friend of the podcast, Mr. Brian C. Tyler. I can think of a couple better people, but yeah, I'm one of the better, one of the best. I, I Top would, five. I, definitely. Up there with Bill Mosley. Yeah. <laughs> I'm talking about people that would actually appear on this podcast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. So 45 years of uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's, uh, I mean, almost a half a century old. I think it still, to this day, holds up. And, I mean, it's very very fitting that we're doing this now because uh, just last week was the, a week and a half or so ago, or I think it was, uh, was the anniversary of Texas Chainsaw Massacre actually coming out? Nine days ago. Nine days ago. Well, wait, I don't know. What's the release date? See, I'm not the best person to have on the podcast. I well, don't even know the release date, but it takes place on the 18th. Yes, it does take place on the 18th of August. Nine days ago. Um, but regardless, uh, two years, two summers ago, we obviously lost um, Toby Hooper as well. Mm. Uh, in uh, we, we lost Marilyn Burns. We lost Gunnar Hansen. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, unfortunately. But... Not much of the cast is left at this point, but... In honor of Toby Hooper, I am drinking a Dr. Pepper. Yes, I actually have to grab myself. It actually didn't... Oh, what the fuck? I mean, I'm usually drinking Hold a on Dr. A Pepper. Hold but, on a second. Hold on a second. It fucking stopped. I felt like... Sorry, technical difficulties. Um, But yes, regardless... Um, it actually came out in October of 74. I don't know why I thought it came out in August. I think because it just okay. takes place in well, August, the year prior, but... It's around the 45th anniversary of the events. And, yes. Uh, well, 46th. Yes. Well, I am i don't care when we do a Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Regardless, anyway, with yeah. Toby passing away just two short summers ago, it's right around this time he passed away yesterday, um, two years ago, so... Uh, Brian, what was the first time that you actually saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Um, I was a kid. It was around the time where I was renting every horror movie I could from Video King. I watched it with, I believe, my dad and my brother and maybe Chad, um... Pape? Halsey. (laughs) Um, yeah. It didn't, um... I don't think it was the right atmosphere. I think we watched it, like, during the day, and we were all talking during it, so actually my first experience with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre wasn't all that exciting, 
But the second time I watched it by myself, I was still a kid. It scared the fucking shit out yeah. of me. Like, I was actually by myself in the dark, paying attention. I didn't know what to expect. I don't think I um, saw all the way through the first time, but the second time I watched it was, like, my first time. Uh, so do you think it took... Um... Before I talk about when the first time I saw it was, um, do you think it took a few different viewings and that right atmosphere for it to kind of really resonate with you and for you to be like, wow, this is truly like one of the great horror films of, you know, of all time? Well, for me, um, what got me in, see, I hate saying this, but what got me into checking out more horror movies was Scream. So I checked out more movies like that and just sort of went further and further back. And when I first started watching those, like, 70s slasher movies, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, not just slasher, but Carrie and The Shining and shit like that. Now, when you... It took me out of my comfort zone. Right. I wasn't ready for it that age, but, you know, but when ended up being my favorites. But when you say that Scream got you more into checking out more horror, that it, we are not talking about early 2000s. We are talking about, like soon after the VHS release, the video release of Scream, right? Like, late 90s? or Yeah, like, Scream, um, every movie they mentioned in Scream made me want to um, go find those movies. Oh, wow. And other okay. movies like them. I, you know, I'd, I'd seen horror movies before, you know. Right, mostly right. Mostly Stephen King stuff with my dad. But... Yeah, Scream is what made me want to check out those classics like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Halloween. And I've actually I've heard you say that Scream kind of like kind of opened the floodgates for you, but I actually didn't know that you actually went out and headhunted after those titles after hearing them in Scream. That's something I didn't know. Yeah, I mean, I think I knew about them already. Right, right. I had looked in the horror section of video thing before, but yeah. Um, and yeah, it was the video release of Scream because that's when I finally was able to see it. And you know, it's uh, it's really funny that you say that actually because I remember, and it had to have been, uh, I want to say fall of '97 uh, when Scream came out on video. Because um, if you remember, it took a while for thing for mo- films to after they left the theater, it take a while for them to hit video. And I know Scream yeah. Scream came out Christmas Day '96. Um, so that seems about right, because I think it took almost a year sometimes for these films to come out, and I vaguely remember getting the Scream VHS at, my mo- my mother getting it at uh, Phase. I think it was still Phase at the time. It might have been right before they turned to Eckerd's. Um, and pe- actually picking up uh, A Night of the Living Dead um, dual uh, VHS collector's edition of the many releases that that had. And it actually had a short film on it, which was like a, a quote unquote, like a parody film, like a night of the living bread where they had toasters and they were killing living dead bread. And I just remember that being in the special features, second uh, VHS cassette of that and having that in scream right next to each other, uh, along with my pre-recorded off HBO Cinemax and Showtime horror movies. Um, but that is kind of what kickstarted. It's funny that you, you said that around that because I think around that time was when I started building a VHS collection, and then slowly, you know, getting into DVDs five to six years after that. But um, I think the first time I saw it was, um, and if I remember correctly, I think 
I saw the third Texas Chainsaw Massacre first. I'm really trying to one. I'm not. I'm. I'll never try to like lie and be untruthful. Like, oh, I saw the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre first, just to seem like I'm the. Because you know how some. I feel like some people do try to. Yeah. Say, like, oh, I saw the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre first, and then I discovered the rest of them in order or whatever, but... While you're on that subject, can I just say that I my first Texas Chainsaw Massacre experience, now that I think of it, was I, some of the fourth one... Next on, Generation. ...on television. Probably the when it premiered on... Fucking, HBO or... Yeah, yeah, something like that, because it was definitely around that time. Uh, which is... it's in, The 90s are such a lost era in horror movies, but... Um, but there was a lot that went on. But we'll, we'll, that's a topic for another day. Or our 90s horror movie episode that we did uh, about a year ago. Um, but I think I saw the the third Texas Chainsaw Massacre first. Okay. Um, if I remember, I'm, try, you know, I'm trying to go back to literally the early to mid-90s now and trying to remember what I saw first. But that was the first one that I remember of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise. The one that really stuck with me. I was a big Benny fan, big Ken Foray guy, early at an early age. But um, mm-hmm. especially from Beyond and those tidy whities yeah, the red banded ones. He looked like a little kid, but it was funny. Um, but I remember seeing the third one, and then I think I seen the original, the nineteen seventy four Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, seeing that, and really, and my parents really like played into the wanting to scare the shit out of their kids type thing. So, you know, they were telling, oh, this really happened. That guy talking in the beginning, like, that that's that's proof right there. The guy's saying this is this actually happened and blah, 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 blah. And uh, so it immediately struck fear into my heart of uh, never wanting to ever go to Texas. Um, but at the same time, wanting to go to Texas. Um, but I remember watching it, and I remember just feeling uncomfortable while watching it, just because it was was so grisly, and it just kind of, it seemed, uh, it, it was actually very similar uh, to, like, uh, the first time I saw Henry, uh, Portrait of a Serial Killer. Uh, again, those uh, those events uh, based off, uh, you know, uh, a real person. Uh, but the origins of Texas Chainsaw Massacre are obviously coming from uh, Wisconsin with, um, Ed Gein. Mm-hmm. But so the, it's based off, you know, the, uh, I'm sure anybody listening to this knows, but is based off, you know, the actions, uh, you know, it's derived from those Ed Gein, uh, the Ed Gein killing and, you know, Ed Gein wearing the face of a corpse, uh, and dancing in the moonlight and, and, yeah. and the lure and the, 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 uh, the mythology of what is now Ed Gein and, you know, Ed Gein, the original Leatherface. Yeah, I'm sure I've talked about this on, on here before, but my dad used to go to this guy who sold, like, hunting supplies, like, probably, I don't know what the fuck hunting supplies are, like guns maybe, <laughs> yeah. bullets, but he also sold used VHS tapes. So my dad That's a hell of a combo. With, like, horror movies for me, and I, I swear one time he came home with Psycho, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Silence of the Lambs. And I don't think he realized he had an Ed Gein thing going on there. Yeah, and right? It was, pretty, it was a pretty cool uh, triple pack he came home with yeah. on accident. Now, uh, so, I, and if, I rem- if I'm remembering correctly, when I first saw it, like I said, I think it... It wasn't my favorite at, at a younger age. And honestly, up until probably like... Uh, 
my preteens into my early teens, I had always favored the second one because of all the uh, all the like the comedy that was in the second one. Um, and it was just, uh, you know, even at a young age, I was I was digging the uh, soundtrack on obviously Texas Chainsaw Massacre too, and I was really loving. Uh, I don't know why, and I know it gets a lot of hate, and, and we're here to talk about obviously uh, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But I mean, that goes without saying. Without that one, you know, there wouldn't have been the franchise it, it created at all. So the, I think as a kid, the third one I had kind of like uh, gravitated toward more uh, more so than the original, but. My first impressions were so, like, different from what they are now. Because I've always loved the first one. I did not like the second one the first time I saw it. I thought the third wow. one was okay, kind of boring. I was a kid. Remember? Yeah, yeah. And I thought the fourth one was, like, my second favorite after the original. Mm-hmm. Kind of weird, right? That is that is a, a weird mix. But I think I was a, I think I was a 3-2 an original, and I would never ever give next generation a watch after the first two times i watched it like the next gen <laughs> two was in my head as a kid two was too goofy for me but four was like the only one that lived up to the original <laughs> the only time the only reason i would ever re-watch next generation for the longest time was the the boob flash scene it's just side boob jesse no i thought it was a full wasn't it a full shot uh, where she's in the window and she that's what i thought as a kid but it's side boob it's just side i think boob. that's the kind of imagination we both had yeah um but regardless uh now I, I i love and respect them all for their own uh reasons but i i now i i do think as much as i adore the second and third one uh the first one just has like a a stink about it that i love revisiting I love giving it a new a stink about it. Yeah, I love giving it a, a whiff all the time, as much yeah, as I possibly too. can. Well, it's it just feels so real. That's why people love it so yeah. much. It really does feel like how a, when you think of a horror movie, that's what a horror movie should be. If the intention is to scare you and, and disturb you, and you I know? I think before I mean because it is a slasher film. There's no denying that it, yeah. it is a slasher film, but it was also an old school monster movie, but the monsters were human. They were real. They weren't supernatural. And that's, what's really scary. Someone that was truly evil and devious and was really enjoying it. You could take yourself out of it. If it's a supernatural element, if it is like a Jason Voorhees, you know, three or four entries in where he keeps coming back to life or even Michael Myers who had, you know, just been destroyed, but kept coming back. There's a level of, you know, your disbelief, you can suspend your disbelief, but at the, when it comes down to it, you know, it's supernatural and you're not truly afraid of it. But with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and the alike of, like, say, a psycho, or, like, you know, uh, going back to, you know, these killers that are, you know, human. There is no supernatural element. They are just pure evil. Um, it's, I think that is where the true, like, uh, terror is, like, created and the fear that people is instilled in people in this. And and I think, I think Toby, you know, out of the big four directors, Wes Craven, John Carpenter, Toby Hooper... In George Romero, uh, I think Toby was the first one to tap into the real life terror. Besides, um, you know, obviously, well, Wes obviously with Last House on the Left, it was a landmark film. 
and that yeah, predates it. But I um, could be wrong. The last house on the left might have had just a little bit of influence on Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I think it did. I think it yeah. did. But as much as I mean, this just stylistically, yeah, yeah, de- definitely. Um, and is like uh, as hard as uh, Last House is to watch, um, and everything. And, and those don't get me wrong, Krug and Co are evil and devious. But I think you still saw like humanistic side to it, and you saw revenge um, by the parents in that film. So there was like as much as I try to explain to people that have never seen Last House on the Left. I say it's a rape revenge movie, but it's a feel good movie at the end because they got justice served to them. But with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I feel <laughs> I feel like it you truly are seeing like a human monster like human monsters. Cannibals. Yes. When you watch Last House on the Left at the end, you're definitely like Gee golly, that put me in a good mood. Right. Well, no, I mean, I'm glad that, you know, revenge was served for... No, I know, I'm just trying to be funny. Yes. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, there's definitely, it's like, anticlimactic? Did I even say that right? I feel like I said it wrong. Anticlimactic? it's, it's not, like, there's definitely a very exciting climax. Yeah. But it ends so abruptly, like... Like, you know, they're... See, I'm bad at talking. They're still out there, like, leather... You know... Yeah, there was no, like... No one was taken care of, like... The family is very much still, you know, active at the end of the film. Yeah. And I think it's, um... Except for Nubbins. Yeah. But I, I, I just think it's, um... That's what's... Like, Last House reads, to me, as just like a... Like a crime, a crime movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, uh, rape and murder, obviously, two of the most heinous crimes you can commit. But then you think two years later with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, well, what's worse than rape or murder? Well, you murder somebody and then you eat them. I mean, that is taking it the next level, and I think that's what Toby tapped into, and it wasn't so far fetched because it was. It's based off Ed Gein. Yes, uh, you know, a grave robber, someone who had murdered somebody and 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 cut her up like uh, like venison. Mm-hmm. And then there were there was more people eating in real life after that. Yeah, Jeffrey Dahmer and Jeffrey Dahmer, of course. Um, Lots of people eat people. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's, it's very popular, or at least it was. Um, but I think, what kind of influence do you think? Uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre has held has held on uh, the horror genre like that still holds on to it forty five years later. Do you see? Do you think you see direct influence um, from you know Toby's work on Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Do you see it in current day horror movies? Do you think because uh, there there's a precedent sent uh, set for horror after we got three very you know you talk about george romero in 68 with night of living dead no one had yeah. he you know romero modernized what we know today as uh a flesh eater uh, a zombie the walking dead and then you know wes craven comes in 72 and does last house on the left gives us this very hard to watch uh you know rape revenge film 
and then we see Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So I feel like it, it kept getting we kept getting it stepped because I know it in '68 Romero's uh, Dead film really kind of shocked people. Yeah. Um, and then the same thing with Wes with Last House, and then again with Toby. And as much as I think, don't get me wrong, I think Friday the 13th and once the 80s came in, Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street, they were a little more, uh, more so the sequels to Friday the 13th, yeah. but um, the the later on having the true character of Jason with the, the hockey mask and everything and Freddy Krueger, they were, there was a supernatural element to them, so they didn't seem as scary as the think- prior, the prior landmark horror films. I think each movie you've mentioned had sort of a, it was very relevant in a way. Yeah. Like there was definitely a real life horror element to each of them, except maybe Friday the 13th. Like I love Friday the 13th, but that was basically, they were doing Halloween in a different setting. Yeah. But yeah, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I mean, even indirectly, it still has an effect today because I think stylistically, and it was already done sort of in Last House on the Left, but the Texas Chainsaw Massacre made it more popular. The uh, sort of documentary style, like you felt like you were sort of wa- just watching people. Like hard to explain, but it's shot like a documentary. It, so I'm... you're, it feels like you're seeing something you shouldn't be seeing. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like that led to found footage, and you know, De- definitely. Uh, that is a great point. Actually, uh, I never really even thought about that, but I think it 100 percent did, and that's something that people have commented on for years. Is Texas Chainsaw Massacre is shot like a documentary? So to say that it indirectly influenced uh, found footage films, I think, is actually a a good point and and something yeah. that was kind of an oversight for years. Like, there might, yeah, like, indirectly. Like, there might not be a Blair Witch Project, and then there wouldn't have been a Paranormal Activity, and then I don't, there's tons of found footage movies, but I lost track. So, yeah, I think Texas Chainsaw Massacre sort of uh, definitely had an effect on those. Definitely had an effect on uh, slasher movies in general. Like, it's because it sort of gets closer and closer to home. Because there was Psycho, and then there was Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and then Halloween took it one step further, I think. You know, very different, but took it one step further by bringing the monster into the suburbs. Yeah. So, it's a different kind of feeling, but you know what I mean. I mean, they. I think each one of these films that we talk about, when we talk about landmark horror films does too it puts it in a setting that makes it relatable to a certain demographic so someone that lives in texas you're you're, at that point you're you're literally segregating an entire state as a setting you know hot sweaty disgusting filthy chili eaten cannibals like Mm -hmm. that's what you think i mean it's the same thing what you know deliverance did with uh you know people in the south Oh, that's on my Netflix list. I've never seen it. Oh, you haven't? That is... I I would love for you to watch that, and I would love to to talk with you about that one, actually. Okay. Um, But, yeah, so that's... um, and, and that's what it is. It's all about setting. Because every film that taps into a setting and puts that horror and puts the terror and puts the situational, uh, you know, horror in that setting... That is what really creeps into the back of your mind, depending on where you live. 
Mm-hmm. So myself, growing up, as you've seen, because we've been friends long enough, where I grew up, it was on the outskirts of a suburban town. So there was very, it was very wooded. It's very rural. So watching a Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, the area you grew up in, it was so close to town, but it did feel like sort of a, that kind of area. In the middle Almost, of nowhere. You're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, that's what it feels like. Because, I mean, as you can attest, when the lights, when it goes dark, when it went dark out where my parents used to live, yeah. It, it's completely darkness everywhere. You got the woods across the street, and it's like woods for mile for a mile. I knew your neighbors could have been the Sawyers. I think the I think the Willsies may have been the elderly couple that lived uh, to the left of them. If you were looking at the front of the house. Oh yeah. Okay. Um. But regardless. Um. But yeah. So things like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, things like Friday the Thirteenth, having those woods in the wooded area so close around me. And walking out there at night, and if you shut the the porch light off, it's complete darkness. Um, so those films always like kind of resonated with me more than say um, than than say like Freddy Krueger, who was like stalking you know the suburbs. So I was you know Freddy Krueger, and he, and he obviously you know attacked you in your dreams, um, and even Michael Myers to a certain extent. I was just like you know as a kid, you're like oh that pussy ain't coming out here. But Jason and Leatherface might be out there. You know, I'm talking about being a very young kid and having those initial fears of the movies after you've watched those movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, the importance of Texas Chainsaw Massacre um, and something that was uh, interesting, and uh, I know Sean and I had talked about it uh, recently, actually in the last episode, but... Um, when we went to our first convention and one of the first people we met was Gunnar Hansen mm-hmm. and being able to have, you know, a conversation with him where he talked about, where I asked him about the, the, uh, the mafia involvement with the financing of the distribution of the film and things like that. And how none of them really saw much of any money, uh, from the success of that, even though it was tearing it up in the drive through, uh, the drive in, uh, uh, regions of the world. Um, they really never saw any money from that, and uh, which is, like I said, it was a fun conversation to have with him because he was making cracks about you know these uh, these uh, Italian mafioso guys. They're just sitting on a beach in Hawaii, like having a margarita with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre money. Um, but I guess that you know that's something that the organized crime rank had had done was getting their hands on these. Uh, Movies and pulling strings to get the distribution for them, and then pretty much just leeching off any of the financials that came in through those, you know, successful films. Um, but so there's like that whole aspect of it too. It was truly maverick filmmaking and trying to get this very grim and grisly movie out and distributed, and then it finally does, and it has legs. It has, you know, it's an effective movie, and people want to go see this. And it was probably, and I, I think, uh, you know, uh, Wes Craven's talked about it. Whenever he's gotten, like, a really bad review when they talk about how, like, despicable his movie is, he's like, it's the best press. In the, it's the best press. You, you can't even buy that kind of press. Mm-hmm. Um, so that movie having that, and I think it still has it to this day, like, has that, you know, as does, like, something like A Last House, where, you know, it's hard for people to watch. I mean, obviously... I mean, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a little tamer than rape, but at the time, you know, you're talking the 
mid seventies. It's early to mid seventies. It's still it's very fresh for people to have yeah. to watch. Uh, you know, something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Wait, yeah, it seems it's not as brutal as rape, but like I like when Sally's being chased through the woods, and especially knowing that Marilyn burnt like it was all real. Like every time she got ran into something, yeah, got yeah, caught by something, it was real. And I, I had... Uh, that makes it all the more disturbing. And anyone who has any kind of addition of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I implore you all to, to watch the special features so you can learn all these, like, uh, this crazy shit. Like, where, um, you know, um, Jim Sedow, who played uh, the cook, um, or he was uh, only credited as the old man in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original, um, you know, he actually hit Marilyn Burns... Because he wanted it to look authentic, mm-hmm. you know. There's things like that that re- that really add to the the uh, the terror, the shock level to the film. Oh, and I'm sorry. One thing you said earlier, comparing uh, Last House on the Left and how it's a very feel good movie by the end of it. Um, <laughs> yeah, when you watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's like kind of just a depressing ending. Because yes, Sally survived, but at what cost? She's never going to be okay again. No. And where'd the truck driver go? I think he got... He got cut up. I think he's okay. I mean, I mean he's, he's probably dead of natural causes yeah. now, but... I don't think Leatherface went after him. You don't think, I think so? he just kept running and ended up at a gas station or something. Now, um, you know, when you talk about the character of uh, Leatherface, too... And, and and I've talked about this uh, many times before, and I as we all have uh, outside of a recording uh, microphone, is you know Leatherface is one of our famous monsters. Mm-hmm. You know the people who grew up with uh, you know Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff, uh, you know playing uh, you know the Wolfman and Dracula, and you know those are the famous their famous monsters uh, generations uh, prior to us but our famous monsters leatherface is one of them yeah you know what i find fascinating is that each sequel um leatherface is totally different in the next one yeah. and the next one cuz there's so many ways to just interpret that character based off the first movie alone. I feel like each sequel takes, like, one side of him and really focuses on that. Yeah. Like, yeah, with the first one, I think you do see... Gunnar Hansen, it really can't be understated what a... Uh, or it can be understated. It can't be overstated um, what he really brought to that character. And I, I'm not sure anybody at that time frame could have portrayed uh the character of you know uh leatherface at that point because he he just he tapped into creating it you know the childlikeness but also the aggression the anger but the feminism like that plays into it too and you want to really talk about predating things with like uh you know social issues and stuff leatherface was uh was a crossdresser was a tra- uh, I mean do you call him transgender probably not a transgender but like had that you know Norman Bates um I just think he had like the mind of a child but he also I felt like had to be like the matriarch of the family right yeah way. that's something that's interesting about Leatherface too is that he always he does in and especially in like um uh 
especially in the first one, and and I, honestly, you could say more so in the most in Next Generation, he does kind of read as the mother. Yeah, uh, I think he's trying. I mean, everyone treats him like a child. Yeah, but I feel like in his mind, not in the third one or like the remakes or anything. Right. But the original and maybe part four and maybe in 3D the most. Right. He's got that feminine side, definitely. And that soft side. Mm -hmm. Where I feel like, you know, he doesn't have a mother. He doesn't have a grandmother anymore. So someone's got to fit that role. Right. I mean, that's how I see it. And it's such an interesting... uh, I mean, because that, again, that derives from real life events. It derives from Ed Gein. Yes. Grave robbing, dressing up in women's clothes, cutting off their nipples, making nipple belts, wearing them, dancing in the pale moonlight, Jack Nicholson style. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what I mean? That's a, uh, it's, it, it's creepy. Cause that, I mean, I'm not saying like, if you want to, if you want to dress in women's clothes and dance in the moonlight, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But like when you're cutting off women's yeah, faces and wearing yeah. them, that is what I'm trying to say. Uh, but that's, you know what I mean? That's, uh, that's pretty crazy that, you know, you think it's all, de- that's where it becomes really creepy after you watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre massacre and then you say oh wait some guy did cut off someone else's face and then put it on his own face yep and then ate french fries or fucking played scrabble i'm so i'm gonna have to order food yeah (laughs) um but i mean that is in something that uh they had talked about a lot especially in the special features of uh texas chainsaw massacre 2 which toby hooper also directed um is is uh, the freedom that Toby gave his actors to really find what they were lo- what he was looking for? Yeah. Let them kind of run a couple different avenues, and it's such a it's such a well known um, fact that you know he would let his actors take different takes and keep going, and just out of the enjoy- enjoyment of the filmmaking, and it's uh, and he he was such a unique uh, mind for the horror genre. And I, I think he was so much different. And I, and I know people try to like, with the poltergeist thing, they try to like, uh, I think undercut him, uh, more than need be. Yeah. Uh, Um, they try to really discredit Toby Hooper. I think some people do, or some horror fans do not a lot, but I, uh, some definitely have. And I don't really, uh, I've seen it a lot actually, which is kind of, I don't know. I think that's disrespectful, especially for someone that was clearly a, a brilliant filmmaker. Definitely, yeah. I mean, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre wasn't his only movie no. for Poltergeist either. No. And he's someone, I think, um, that really uh, doesn't get the fair shake. When you talk about the... Uh, when I when I say Big Four, I, I mean, you know, overall, mainly people say the Big Four directors of horror are George Romero, Wes Craven, John Carpenter, and Toby Hooper. And in my eyes, that is accurate. I put that because I have, I've talked about it before, but I haven't talked about it with you, at least on a recorded mic. So I, I want to really talk about this right now. You talk about George Romero, who created what we know as the modern zombie in 1968. So he created pretty much like a modernized version of a monster that is is popular now as it's ever been. 
mm-hmm. on the a very successful, very long running Walking Dead. Greg Nick, yeah, it's still going, I guess. But and you know, Greg Nicotero, who is you know a big figurehead with Walking Dead now, learned on under the tutelage of of uh, of uh, Tom Savini, someone who was you know uh, a protege of George Romero, wanted to work on the original Living Dead film, couldn't because he was going to Vietnam. Uh, comes back, works with Romero on several films, Martin, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, uh, gets gifted the Night of the Living Dead remake by George Romero. So Savini is 100%, uh, you know, a brother-in-arms, and dare I say protege, uh, of George Romero. And Greg Nicotero coming from, you know, uh, K&B, right in, you know, right in all that guff. So it's all intertwined, and, and, and that is like George Romero's legacy. He created the zombie that we know today. And then you look at Wes. Wes comes out with an ultra shocker film, a rape revenge film, a really like gruesome, very hard to watch, real film in horror. And then Wes goes on to create Freddy Krueger, probably and arguably the most identifiable and the most famous, famous monster of our generation. Yeah. I feel like the special thing about Wes Craven is that, do you feel like um, the teenage characters in his movies felt more real than teenage characters in other horror movies? Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Wes, Wes was. I mean, it would scream. It was a lot of Kevin Williamson too, but still. And don't get me wrong. We could definitely. I mean, we'll we could talk about um, Wes all day. I would. And yeah. we've it, already done a whole podcast on Wes. Yeah, and uh, you know, and Wes did tap into. I think uh, was always current with what the youth was. Uh, or how to how to you know stay in touch with them, I guess. But mm-hmm. and then you talk about um, John Carpenter, obviously Halloween, the creation of Michael Myers. You, the influence for Halloween and Michael Myers is huge. Mm-hmm. And he was the most successful at yeah. branching outside of horror, but you know he'll always be most remembered for his horror film. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, do you think there was any kind of influence? I, I don't know if Carpenter's ever said it, but do you think there was influence from Texas Chainsaw Massacre on, say, Halloween? Um, maybe a little bit. I've never... I don't know if I've ever heard John Carpenter talk about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but I'm pretty sure... He had to he have. Had I can't think of it off the top of my head. I can't either. But I know... Um, for Halloween, he had a lot of different influences. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Psycho, and he even cited, like, haunted house movies of the 50s for, like, the, the scare scenes. And, uh, so, with all that said, those are, you know, and some of that I think can't be, um, left out when we have this conversation is kind of the hand that Sean Cunningham has had in the horror in the horror business, obviously with helping getting last house in the left made and his, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, spearheading the Friday the 13th franchise. I mean, he can't be lost in the shuffle either, but though them being our, I see him as more of a businessman than a creative. I mean, he created Friday. The, no, he didn't write Friday the 13th. Yeah. He's definitely great. Like, Business great, a great mind for you know wanting to uh, produce. He is the ultimate producer. He helps get it done. Um, 
But back to uh, to Toby. Toby just seemed like so different, even from his uh, his comrades in you know the Big Four. He just seemed just offbeat, a little different. Yeah. As far as his style, as far as his uh, influence, and and in his other films, they are just different than you know most horror films of their respective time. Because is there anything like Texas Chainsaw Massacre in the early to mid-70s? No. There's nothing. I mean, arguably, there's been nothing really, truly as different as that for its time period. It's just something that can't be replicated. It can't. I mean, even with the sequels, of course we love the sequels. But there is just like a little bit of like... There's a little bit of stink on it that is just... uh, is is too comforting to not keep smelling. Right. They. I mean, they started getting more commercial, and um, that really started with the third one. I think um, commercializing it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and the second one was just they went in a totally different direction on purpose, and I think that's great, and it works for it. But now it doesn't have the the power that the first one has. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Now um, and. A big part of the film that I think really added and aided to the creepiness is what we opened this podcast with was John Larroquette uh, reading the you know the intro the excerpt about you know explaining about Sally Hardesty and you know what I mean and explaining it and his voice is just so like is chilling to hear it is. and I think there's no other way. It is the creepiest, to me, in my opinion, it is still to this day the creepiest opening to any film and really straps you in for what you're about to experience. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, and it's a staple of that franchise, right? Every film opens with that, correct? Is there a film that doesn't open with that? That doesn't open with that? That doesn't open with, and I'm I'm almost positive that Laroquette opens everyone maybe not next generation i'm not sure um i didn't know it was the same voice through all of them i know he came back for the remake wait maybe it was just the you know what i think it was just the remake in the original then right but yeah definitely the original four have that um a voice and the, right um words but he's <laughs> but he's the remake um the remake he comes back to do the voice there's no um what do you call it like a reading ex reading. you know excerpt reading Crawl. I, yeah and then in the prequel to that it's at the end instead of the beginning now i don't know about anything after that though i think he's vastly important to the film definitely i mean which is it gives it that you know true crime sort of vibe isn't that kind of crazy to say that like just his voice like meant so much to that film opening yeah that is kind of crazy but it's true it's it's true it i don't think i think that's very fair to say the the importance of it's kind of like you know when you say the theme music to halloween is so important to the movie yeah exactly it plays as a character Mm -hmm. and um so I guess uh, going back to two years ago, when you first heard that uh, Toby had kind of passed, that he didn't kind of pass away, he did pass away. Um, 
when you heard that Toby passed away, I mean, what was your first thought? Because um, he passed away, you know, uh, just sh- two short years after Wes Craven passed right. away. It, you know, it was sad, obviously, and I was saddened by it. But and I, another level of sadness is that I wasn't surprised, and I didn't feel like I was as sad about it as I should be, because it seems like our the icons, like our, our legends that we looked up to passing away was becoming so normal. It, I mean, we lost Romero just uh, a few weeks before, I think a little, yeah. a month or so before Toby as well. Um, I, you know, when Wes Craven died, it's just, that that was sort of the first one for me. Yeah. The one that got me the most. And then everything after that, it's been like, oh, you know, there goes another one. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but to think that, you know, four out of the... Um, I feel Earth. terrible saying that because he was a human being. They're all yeah. You know. I mean, when there's three out of the four, uh, big four that are dead now, just in the past mm-hmm. four years, you know, Wes is Wes is gone, and then George, and then and then Toby, and now there's uh, only John Carpenter left. I mean, that's kind of uh, that's scary. That you know, sooner rather than later, there's going to be a world where. We don't. We live with none of those directors anymore. Right. Right. And, and unfortunately, you know, there's really no one like them today. Um, at least no one that can gain that amount of success. And- no, and I think it's it's due to a lot. I think it's due to there's too there's too much content out there. So yeah, it, exactly. some of it gets lost in the shuffle. Stuff that could have stood out back in the those eras that, that that our big four dominated in stuff that could stand out today it's everything's just so oversaturated so when you do find that film that is really effective on it, it really affects you um it's harder to find now because there's just so many films out there and there's so many new new movies and a lot of them let's be honest aren't aren't up to snuff they aren't they aren't providing what we think they should be providing. But at the same time, uh, I... I say, I'm sorry to interrupt. There are a couple directors who um, have surprised me and made me feel things that I wasn't expecting to feel. Or, you know, given me something that I don't feel I've already seen in a movie before. Right. Even if it reminds me of another movie, it's done differently. So I'd say Ari Aster... Uh, who directed Hereditary and mm-hmm. Summer, and Jordan Peele, who, you know, Get Out and Us. They, um... Which are hugely successful I films. Think, I think they're on the right track, definitely. Now, uh, someone actually, now that we're talking about it, trying to think of someone that could hold the helm, um, someone I'm, I'm really extremely, um proud of the work that he's done. I mean, not like I'm his fucking father or anything, but Mike Flanagan, I think, is really... Oh, yeah, Mike Flanagan. Is really... I mean, uh, I thought Hush was really, really fun and really was such a different uh, a different type of film, um, but was highly entertaining. And something I thought would be kind of uh, 
for lack of a better uh, description, kind of stupid and hokey and, and played out was The Haunting of Hill House, I thought would be kind of, uh, oh, they're cashing in on the, you know, the supernatural, possession, whatever, conjuring type bullshit. Um, but I thought A Haunting uh, of Hill House was really, really good and did have a creep factor that I think not many films can have in 2000, you know, 18, 19 now, but, um, and I was really, I mean, obviously that was a, a, a series, but, uh, that one was really entertaining and I think I enjoyed it way more than I was ever anticipating. So Mike Flanagan's definitely on my, uh, short list. I, de- I haven't finished The Haunting of Hell House yet, but I've seen, uh, Mike Flanagan's movies, most of the movies he's done. Yeah. I, I like them a lot. I did think Gerald's Game was, that was a great adaptation. I had yeah. a lot of fun with that one as well. Um... And if I had to name another person off the top of my head, I would say uh, Michael Doherty. Trick or Treat. Trick or Treat, Krampus. Um, Those two films are probably two of the most fun films for me of the last 15 years. Um, They're just a blast to watch, both of them. And I think they... When I watch them, I think that I go, wow, these things, these were made for me. And that's really hard to find in 2019. So mm-hmm. uh, those are two guys that I think are, are holding the helm as, you know, three of our four uh, uh, horror giant directors are now passed. So uh, the thing about I'm so, no, Jordan, go ahead. Jordan Peele that reminds me of, of those directors from back then is that he really has gotten people talking and has explored themes in a way that I... It just reminds me of George Romero. Um, I feel like Jordan Peele has gotten a lot of flack for um, discussing themes that people aren't totally comfortable talking about right now. You know what I mean? I could yeah. I could definitely see that. I do think that his films are for a certain horror fan. Yeah. Um they're not for every horror fan because I I am not going to sit here and tell you that I think his films are uh necessarily uh masterpieces. I think I, I mean I think they're they're definitely any kind of horror movie that does the kind of business that get out or or um, I'm not sure. Did us how did us do well? Us did well. Yeah. Us did well. Okay. Um, I do think no matter what, um, it, high tide raises all ships, and I'm uh, I went and saw both movies in theaters, so I supported I supported the horror genre, and you know if if those films help other horror films get made because of the success of it. That's all that really matters in the end. Are you helping the genre? Do you want to, you know, does he consider them horror films? I don't know. I I, I mean, to me, they are. Um, but they're also more than that. They're not true blue horror films. They're, you know, they have a lot of suspense. And they have a lot of, like, thriller elements. But then, you're, you know, you're, you're nitpicking at that point uh, as to what genre it is. Um... But as far as what I consider a horror movie, I, I wouldn't outright call it a horror film, even though, you know, I think most would. But like I said, if that's going to get other quote unquote horror films made, I'm all for going to see them, supporting them, and supporting uh, offshoots of the genre. Cool. 
So what else do we have to say about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Uh, I mean, there's... I mean, I think we've said about everything. It's just such a a landmark, um, a landmark film. I want to know what you really think about Franklin, Franklin Hardesty. You know what? I think he gets, I think he gets a bad rap. Me too. I, I feel really bad for the. Guy. I mean, the poor motherfucker is crippled up, fucking trying to make his way through this. He can't really. He can't defend himself. No, I mean in. He's and they kind of just leave. They kind of just leave him. And it's so fucking hot, and you know he's with his sister and her friends. They don't really seem to want anything to do with him. But and he's kind of left to his own. Like they're like, "Oh, figure it out, you fat handicapped fuck." Yeah, like I get that they're young. You know, Kirk and Pam they want to go swimming and have sex with each other and. I mean, you can't blame that. I don't know what the hell's going on with Jerry, though. Yeah. I don't know if Jerry and um, Sally were a couple, or if they were, like, heading towards that direction, or if Jerry was gay. I don't know. Maybe. That would have been interesting if him and Franklin were were intimate. I mean, not on film, but... No, there doesn't seem to be any connection between them. I think Kirk... Kirk and Pam sort of made fun of Franklin. Well, maybe Jerry did, too. Mostly Kirk. So, yeah, poor Franklin. I think um, any horror fans that are listening that think Franklin are annoying and decide to complain about that, like, put yourself in Franklin's <laughs> you're, you're fucking... It's out of shit. It's in, you're in Texas. You're fucking crippled. Yeah. What would you do? The fucking hitchhiker cut your goddamn arm. Yeah, would you be like, able to stay calm and just... What was he supposed to do? Just wheel himself into the corner and shut up? <laughs> uh, Assholes. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, just such a such a landmark film, and it's so fun to rewatch. It's one of the easiest movies to rewatch. Um, it goes by so quick, and it's... It's always a... I always take something new away from watching it whenever I watch it. Me too, even if it's just, like, a shot or... Or more appreciation for Franklin. Yeah, I just want to give Franklin a hug, but I want him... It is... He's sweaty, so I'd rather wait till he showers. True. So, uh, on that note, you can uh, find us on uh, Instagram at HeartGodMedia. You can find us on Twitter at HeartGodMedia. Um... We are wherever you listen to your podcast. We are on Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify. We are on Stitcher and Google Play and wherever wherever you get uh, your podcast, wherever you stream, listen, download, uh, rate, and review us on iTunes, um, on Spotify if they have that. I'm not sure. Um, we are everywhere now. Yeah, we are everywhere. Um, and yeah, just uh, spread the word if you do check this out. I greatly appreciate it. Uh, and, uh, yeah, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, 45 years um, of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Brian, thank you for doing this today. Thank you for having me.
grave robbing in Texas is this hour's top news story. An informant led officers of the Muerto County Sheriff's Department to a cemetery just outside the small rural Texas community of Newt early this morning. Officers there discovered what appeared to be a grisly work of art, the remains of a badly decomposed body wired to a large monument. A second body was found in a ditch near the perimeter of the cemetery. Subsequent investigation has revealed at least a dozen empty crypts, and it's feared more will turn up as the probe continues. Deputies report that in some instances, only parts of a corpse had been removed. The head, or in some cases, the extremities removed, the remainder of the corpse left intact. Evidence indicates the robberies have occurred over a period of time. Sheriff Jesus Maldonado refused to give details in the Coolish case and said only that he did have strong evidence linking the crime to elements outside the state.